see if I can just make that work. It's lovely to have the rain, isn't it? Even though it's a bit humid, it's still just... Thank you, Lord. It's a wonderful gift. My daughter, Kate, and her husband, Dan, and their child, Marnie, arrive on Wednesday evening, I think, or late evening or something like that. So they're going to be with us for the next three weeks. So we're looking forward to that. That means the next 48 hours we have to clean the house, move stuff, rearrange an office into a bedroom. So please pray for us that that comes together. Um, my office is a complete mess. I have my shelves are full and I have books on the floor about two or three deep and they're about that high. So I've got to find boxes to put that in. Um, otherwise, I think Marnie will be in my bed and I will be outside somewhere. Um, this is the passage we're doing tonight, and was a, oh, I will have a go at your question. Uh, it comes up in this passage. But it's interesting that it's a, a perennial question that we've been asking for millennia. And so I'll give you a, a theory. If I don't get to it, I hope I do, but if I don't get to it, then remind me. There are two theological... I'll start now, but I won't, I'll stop. There are two theological positions which are this far apart. And after I have spoken, they'll be this far apart. But they're still apart because we can't get it here. We don't have the ability. We can acknowledge both truths, but anyway, we'll see where we go and see where you end up. Um, Pastor Charlie, you are aware with Elena and the girls are on holidays um, and they're away until about the 7th of January. So pray for them. Uh, still around for about a week or so doing some stuff at home. Elena's still finishing up work and... She's left him a list of things. It's what wives do, isn't it? list of things that he's got to get done. And then he loves driving. Did you know that about him? Just loves it. I think one day he might have been too highly stressed. And I think on his day off, he was going to go to... There was some fast car track around here somewhere. You didn't go and pay so much money and like go like... Where is it? Pimpama? I don't know. Somewhere down... No, Pimpama. Wherever. Palat. That'll do. Anyway... I'm not sure if he did that. Anyway, he's dropping Elena off at the airport and the girls, and then he's driving to Melbourne. Racing the plane. <laughs> no, he's not. But he just loves to drive. He finds that very relaxing. So pray for him that it's safe um, and that he does relax and unwind. They'll catch up with family in Melbourne. Then when he returns, uh, he'll hit the ground running like all of us will in January. is going to be a very full month. Pastor Brendan, with Michelle on Friday, flew to Darwin where Owen was on the edge. So he was flying into uh, strong winds, high rain, and after Owen had moved across to, towards Townsville, then it was going to be an extremely high fire danger. He was there going into exactly heaven, I guess. <laughs> Pray for them. They're away until about Christmas Eve. They're attending a wedding up there with uh, Rod and Dot and all the family going together together for that. So those are the guys away. Uh, I saw Pastor David before. Oh, there he is. I can just see that far. Um, is back from being away two weeks away, and you would have heard a little bit of stories about that. It's good to have Dave back with Rosemary. And Josh, you would have heard this morning. And Alvin, of course, is um, still around, and he'll be around over the January Christmas stuff. And he's a little bit overwhelmed at the moment, struggling with uh, two congregations, Mandarin and Cantonese. So remember Alvin and Cherry and... He'll have a break coming up soon, which will be important for him, but we've got to do some rethinking, re-strategizing there. Um, yeah, so that's where we're up to, I guess, pastorally. Uh, I do want to say this to you too as a congregation. You may or may not be aware, some of, some of you will definitely know these people. Uh, Bronwyn Webb 
uh, is in hospital, has been since last Wednesday, with both lack of oxygen getting into her. She had a blood transfusion, I think, the other day. But she has an infection and they don't know where it are. They can't find it. And it's some sort of reaction or response to perhaps the medication. They've taken her off one and left her on another to see if that's what it is. They still don't know. So pray for Bronwyn, who's uh, obviously feeling a little bit battered. Strong faith in the Lord Jesus, trusting God through it all, but you get to a point where you just say, oh, Lord, I've, you know, I've had enough. Can, can you do something, please? So John, her husband, who has his own belief in God and walk with the Lord, is uh, being very strong through this. So pray for John and for Bronwyn and the kids. Adrian Roberts, some of you will know Adrian, his wife Rilla has just been diagnosed, it happened a while ago but she's just released the information now, of, uh, she has a lump in one of her breasts, in fact two lumps, one is cancerous and one isn't, she goes for surgery this week and that's going to be I think on Wednesday or Thursday, does anybody know, no, Thursday is the operation, thanks. Um, so pray for her, and it's, it's a mystery. It's they, they're going in to find out, and then they'll be making decisions about what's going to happen after this. So they're, they're also in a difficult stuff, both family, but now this health situation for Rilla, and pray that God will meet with them and carry them through this very trying time. And of course, continue to uphold our brother Gary Chadasco and Peter Lim and Cole, who's getting older, frailer, how old is Nola? Yeah. Mrs. McNabb. Uh, others that are in the nursing home. So remember our seniors and that they've walked with Jesus for many years and you know, send them a word or a card or a call or whatever it is that you feel prompted to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a church family together at various ages of life and stages of faith. For all the folk we've mentioned, as was a prayed, so we pray again. Lord, meet with them at their point of need. And may they look for you and find you to be the God who is near, the God who is with them. Not perhaps the one who is doing what they want or wish, but nonetheless the one who is working his purposes out. Lord, we here tonight submit to you. We thank you for your word and we pray that you'll achieve your purposes in each of our lives. And that you would... Help us to become more like Jesus. We ask and pray this in his name. And everyone said, can we just have the text of the scripture up and then that might be easier for guys to follow. There are three parts to this passage. I was going to write them up and then I thought, nah, too lazy. Um, I meant on a whiteboard or stuff. I'm going to have to buy, when he's paying attention, I'm going to say it. I'm going to have to buy a flip chart. Is that all right? Yeah, can we do that? Because I'll be very happy to have a flip chart. I'll write on it. What? No, I don't want a whiteboard. I want a flip chart. It's it's the latest modern technology. Yep, it's gone full circle. Businesses and corporations are now going back to flip charts. Isn't that right, Don? Say yes. Thank you. This passage has three parts. The first part is verses 1 and 2, and I've called that the arrival and the announcement of the Magi. The arrival and the announcement of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so it's after his birth from Matthew chapter 1. So now, when was Jesus born? Nobody knows, but it's about 5, 6, 
Seven's starting to get too early, but that's the range. Anything from 4 BC tends to be the cutoff. It has to be born before 4 BC. Why? Because in 4 BC is when Herod dies. And Herod is alive when Jesus is born, so he's got to be born before that. So maybe 5 BC, it's a good choice. Perhaps even all the way back to 6. What's happened up until this point is that the Lord Jesus has been born on, we don't know the date, and it could have been December 25th, but we don't know. Um, and seven day, eight days after that, Luke chapter 2, he has uh, been circumcised and named Jesus in obedience to the angel's command. 33 days after that, they're still in Bethlehem, 33 days after that, they travel up to Jerusalem, to the temple, where they meet Anna and Simeon. They prophesy over them and utter all kinds of uh, prophetic and nice statements about who this child is. And uh, Mary and Joseph offer a sacrifice of redeeming the firstborn child. They offer two turtle doves, two doves, because it's an indication that they're not people of means or wealth, which of course means the wise men have not visited them yet. They don't have the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. So this is now day 40. They're from Nazareth. And Luke just cuts all of this story out the rest of it, Herod and Egypt and all of that, he just cuts it out and says after that, they went back to Nazareth. So that's true, but there's stuff that happens in between. From the temple, they go back to Bethlehem and they're no longer in a barn, they are now in a house. And he's no longer a babe when this story comes, he is a child. So he is at least, I'm guessing, six months. How long did it take the wise men to travel from wherever they traveled from to get to Jerusalem? Five, six months seems reasonable amount of time. Could have been longer. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, because there's another Bethlehem and another um, tribe in Israel, during the time of King Herod, so before 4 BC, Magi, wise men, from the east, came to Jerusalem. Where from the east? Well, anything from next door, from Parthia, all the way across to Iran, Iraq, around about Persia, or even further west, they could have come from India. And some people even say they came from China. It's in the east. Matthew doesn't tell us. The Lord's not too worried about it. We just know they come from the east and they've come some distance. They probably didn't turn up. Uh, certainly by the um, Middle Ages, you've heard this sort of stuff before. There's all sorts of myths and legends about these characters. They were called kings. Probably weren't. If they were from Parthia or from Persia, they were certainly involved. They had very significant, powerful influence and they were kingmakers. But if they weren't from there, then they doesn't fit their category. Um, by the mid, Middle Ages, we have their names. They have their number. Uh, that's the hymn writer writes, We Three Kings of Orienta comes from those myths and traditions which we don't have facts or evidence for. But amazingly, by the 12th century, a bishop in Cologne discovered their three skulls. So that's helpful, isn't it? <laughs> not. So what do we know about them? Well, we know what Matthew tells us. That's what we know about them. We know they came from the east. We know they came with a reasonable amount of wealth, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We know a little bit about them from their name. From the word magi, we get our word magic or magician. And that's because it traces back to what they were sort of involved in. There's both positive and negatives about this word. There are good magi and there are corrupt, um, deceptive magi. It's a little bit like televangelists today. 
There are good ones and there are charlatans. Also, this word magi has this very broad range. And you'll find the use of the word wise men all the way through the scriptures. You'll find it back in the book of Job, first book, the oldest book we have in the scriptures. Um, and you'll have it certainly in Daniel. Um, and you'll have them as around the king, he would get wise people to come and give him godly advice or wise advice, direction. They tended to be highly intelligent. They were, in our terms, scholars um, as well as priests for some of them. Uh, they studied the stars, not astrology, but astronomy, to the best of my awareness. They studied science, maths, agriculture, and history. The bad ones, they were into the sorcery and the occult and to all sorts of other things. So in Acts chapter 8, you read about a guy called Simon Magus, Simon the Magi. He was a bad guy. He was deceptive. He was into the money. Um, but these three guys, oops, these guys um, weren't. Um, so they come, and I like the theory, and that's all it is, a theory, is they come from the east, probably from around Babylon. When the Jews were exiled to Babylon, the whole, lot, the whole contingent of them went and stayed there. And the Jews, there was a Jewish um, colony, uh, settlement, in Babylon still in the first century, and in fact beyond that. And one New Testament scholar would want to say that that's even literally the letter that Peter writes. He writes to the, the elect, the Christians, in Babylon. And it's not a metaphor for Rome. It's, in fact, literal Babylon. So there were certainly Jews in Babylon. Daniel was in Babylon. And these guys, if they were in Babylon and they intermarried and all that's a long history. But anyway, these guys, it's a, an interesting, entertaining possibility that these guys had some awareness of the Old Testament scriptures but it was through their study of the stars that something happened. They saw a star appear, and from that they drew the conclusion. This, this was a royal star. It's in the sign of the heavens, which for them meant Israel. So it's the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. And it led them to make this uh, committed journey. So when they arrive in Jerusalem, they go around saying... and so. I need to say this, because often the movies and or Christmas cards or people's thinking is wrong. They saw the star when it appeared, and then it disappears. And they move, and they go to Jerusalem from a conclusion. Jerusalem is the place to go, because the king of the Jews will be born in Jerusalem. That's a conclusion they would have had, and that's why they went there. They did not follow the star to Jerusalem. That's incorrect. When they get to Jerusalem, the star is gone. It's not there anymore. And so as you read on later, the star will reappear. There is a gap in time. I'm not sure how long that gap is, and depending on what you think the star is, is how long you might want it to be. Anyway, the wise men turn up in Jerusalem, and they go around asking the question. They arrive, and their question is, their announcement is, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising, at its appearance when it was first seen. And we have come to worship him. They must have been shocked in Jerusalem when many people would have said, what are you talking about? People didn't know. People weren't expecting it. They weren't informed of it. And eventually, the third, second paragraph goes really to, to Herod. But before I just get to him, let me finish with the wise men by saying in their star, God used the star... This is part of the answer was to the question. God used creation to get their attention. And then through 
my understanding, their reasoning processes. They wanted to respond to that. They weren't just satisfied with experiencing and seeing the star. They actually wanted to do, encounter him, the child. So they go to Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem that the God who got their attention through creation leads them to the scriptures. Now, that seems to me to be a pattern of how God works in the world. He'll get your attention through dreams. He'll get your attention through circumstances. He'll get your attention through all sorts of ways and avenues. But ultimately, he will lead you to the scriptures because the scriptures will lead you to his son, Jesus. That's certainly what happened for them. They come. And I've got down here certain theories about the star, but you don't want to know that, so I'll just jump over it. <clears throat> when they come, verses 3 to 8, uh, you can ask me a question afterwards if you want to. Uh, it's the agitation and the questions of Herod. Now, it's a really interesting point in time when they get there. Not too much time I've got, but I could waffle on for far too long. Um, when they get there, it says Herod is troubled, he's disturbed, he's worried. Spurgeon's comment is, it really gives an indication that you're in a very poor spiritual state when the saviour troubles you. It's good insight, isn't it? When Jesus troubles you, you're worried about him as an indication something's not right. And that's true today. With many people around us, they will fear Jesus. They fear what he's going to do or require of them. They'll have to change jobs. They'll have to give up their pleasures. They'll have to change the way they're living or they'll, they'll have to surrender their lives. And that fear sometimes prevents them from making a step of commitment towards him. Also part of the answer. So Herod is agitated. Now, Herod's also agitated because we know towards the end of his life, he's getting towards the end of his life. This is 5, 4 maybe, let's say 5 BC. For the last 10 years of his life, he's aged, he's become unwell, and he's paranoid. And what he had done to set up his little kingdom in Israel, he had married 10 different women, 10 different marriages. He had 15 different children from them. And he was all about trying to develop a succession plan of who, which son he would put on a throne after him that his glory might continue. But he didn't have the power to do that. Augustus Caesar had to approve it. Caesar had veto powers. So that meant many trips for Herod to Rome to try and present another son. And, Herod, uh, and Augustus would go, no. And so this, he's towards the end of this process, this disturbing journey about a succession plan not being able to be fulfilled but there's also, in Rome now, Augustus is ageing. The Caesar himself is getting older. And now Rome is weaker than it was before. And the Parthians, who had invaded 30, 40 years before, they're becoming discontent and they're wanting to invade Israel again and they're wanting to replace the king. So with a weakened Rome, with the possibilities of an invasion from Parthia, and suddenly... These wise men turn up in regalia and they wouldn't have come as just them. They would have had guards or soldiers with them to protect them. They would have had uh, assistants and servants and they probably had a press call with them too, I would imagine. TV cameras and everything, just imagine that. So they weren't a little group of people who turned up. There was suddenly this significant group arrives and here is Herod, troubled by it. Where are you from? Parthia? Rome is weakened, Parthia is rising. Internally, he's got these group of people called the Zealots. They're like terrorists. We know what that's like. We live in a world of terrorism. And if you're in France and suddenly people turned up, 
and you've got this internal people who are trying to get rid of you. And the scripture says that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him because they knew what Herod was like. He had become a very cruel, vindictive person. If he suspected you of wanting to take his throne, he killed you. He had you killed. He killed two of his brothers, three of his wives, some of his in-laws, and two of his sons. He was about to vent his same paranoia and cruelty on the boys of Bethlehem. This is the remaining stages of his life. The wise men come and it says, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him because they knew what it was like when he was a troubled ruler. But there were two things Herod didn't know when he needed to know. Herod's agitation and his questions. First question, where? So Herod summons the chief priests and the teachers of the law. The chief priests, you know how we have various prime ministers now? And in America, they have various presidents. And you maintain the title, even though you're no longer in office. So the chief priests were the high priests. And the high priests were the ones who used to be high priests, but they're not the high priest anymore. You used to serve as a high priest for, for life, but not when Herod came to power. When Herod came to power, he killed 45 of the 70 elders of Israel to maintain his control. He then appointed people politically who would be his agents, secret agents, if you like, working for him within the Jewish establishment. And he fired the high priest and appointed somebody else. And he hired, fired that one. And he appointed. So there is a group of ex-high priests whom he summons to come and visit him. And his one question is, where is the Messiah to be born? He also brings with them the Bible scholars, the theologians, the scribes, the people who taught the scriptures and so on. And they knew exactly where it was going to be because they tell him in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among all of the rulers of Judah. You're small, but you're not insignificant. Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod now knows where. Bethlehem. There's something he doesn't know, and it's the second thing he needs to know. He wants to know when. How old is this child? So he, verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly. Doesn't want anybody else knowing what his plans are. Just him. Calls them in. Found out from them... When did that star appear? How long ago was it? It's five months ago. It's six months. It's a year ago, whatever it was. Okay, now he knows when. Now all he needs to know is who. Who is this child? I know where he is. I know how old he is. I just want to know who he is. And then he lies, clearly. Here is a man who dabbles in the scriptures, but is completely unchanged by it. His heart is still hardened and wicked against God's purposes. Um, so he sent them the, off to Bethlehem and said, go, you search diligently for the child, and as soon as you find the child, you will come back and tell me, and I too will go and worship him. <clears throat> well, we all know that's a lie, and nonetheless, off they go. The, the third paragraph is about the adoration and the return of the Magi. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen the very first time, that they hadn't seen for months or for a period of time, suddenly reappears. But now it appears in a different spot in the heavens and it appears to be going in a different direction. This star moves from north to south. It goes ahead of them from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. This time they are following the star. The Bible says it went ahead of them. It's moving. Um, 
And so as far as I, I'm not aware of any heavenly bodies that make that movement, but there's a recent book in which comets can sometimes make that movement, that they'll move, they'll appear to be moving in that direction. And I don't know any heavenly body, any natural phenomenon that actually stops and points at a house, which is what this star does. So it appears not to be a natural phenomenon. It appears to be something miraculous, something that God either did. It could have been just his Shekinah glory. It could have been a bunch of angels, you know, moving. I don't know. They saw it as a, a star, a heavenly object, and they followed it. And it stands still and it points. The latest book out on this is written by a guy called Chris Nichols, I think his name is. And his research indicates that, in fact, it was a comet. You need to see the book. And the way the comet is moving over Bethlehem, and then that's the tail of the comet, which is in this sort of direction. And it looks like, if you follow the tail of the comet, it looks like it's pointing straight to that house. That's his explanation. You just wait two years, there'll be another book and there'll be another theory. And we don't know. God isn't, hasn't chosen to tell us. So whatever it was, God did something special. The Magi, it says, <laughs> Matthew can't write exactly what they felt but he just runs away with superlatives verse 10 when they saw the star it says they were the niv sadly just says they were overjoyed it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy they rejoiced with joy they rejoiced they rejoiced exceedingly with joy they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy wasn't necessary. They didn't need the star. They knew where they were going. They were going to Bethlehem. But God, nonetheless, they welcomed it. And it certainly did a search, assist them in their search. When they get to the house, the scripture says, note the words, Matthew's very precise, on coming to the house, not the stable or the barn, they saw the child, not the babe, with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, head touching ground, bowed down and worshipped him. Got to be careful with the word worship, but in this context, it probably means they had some understanding that this child, who was the king, the coming Messiah, it has something divine about him. It's building a lot on just one word, nonetheless. They respond then to him by opening their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, very expensive uh, objects which would have funded their trip, upcoming trip to Bethlehem, uh, to Egypt and would have sustained them for some time. And then they sleep that night, but God warns them in a dream not to go back to Herod. They're obedient. And notice it says they return to their country, one country. They came from one place, not several places. So they, they came from the east, they came from one country in the east. Well, what does all of that mean to us? All these things. The arrival and the announcement of the Magi, the agitation and the questions of Herod, and it's the adoration and then the obedient return of the Magi to their own country. I wonder if they told their own country about what the experiences they had. Probably. There are two characters in this. The, the Matthew, it's behind the scenes. It's God, God's part and God's people. God's part was he sent the star and he uses the scriptures to guide them. God does speak to people through creation. Part of the answer was to your question about why doesn't God speak to people? Why doesn't he open their eyes? Well, according to Romans chapter 1 and according to Job chapter 33, you have God does speak to people, all people. Creation declares his existence and his glory and everybody on the planet is without excuse. So in one sense, God does communicate to everybody. 
Job 33 tells us that God even turns up and appears to people in dreams, does here in this passage. He does, we know, through uh, church history and mission history, that God will appear to dreams, and he particularly these days is appearing to Muslim people in dreams. And there are remarkable stories of people going into villages, and when the missionary turns up, a white missionary with a book, and then the village chieftain will tell you, we dreamt about you. For years we've been waiting for you. We knew that a white person would come bringing a special book. Stories like that are multiplied. God talks to people in all sorts of ways. It would appear, I would draw the conclusion that he talks to everybody, that there is no one he doesn't talk to. But that's not your question. Your question is, even though God talks to everybody, for some people he seems to, like Lydia, open the heart. But he doesn't, we're not told he does that for everybody. That he seems to work on some people more than he does on others. Well, these wise men were certainly responsive. Um, And here are the three responses from this passage. You have Herod, the wise men, and the chief priests. Then I want to conclude that, and then I'll have a shot at your question, the theology of it, just to bore everybody before we go home. Notice Herod. Herod is typical response of people who hate and oppose Jesus. They're interested in themselves and their own kingdom. And in fact, they're so opposed to Jesus, they would destroy him if they could. And Herod is certainly of that ilk. Fear of loss or whatever it was or whatever would drive him. His attitude would appear to be, this world is it. And I'm in charge of my life. I know what God's will is. I know what God wants, but I resist it and I deny it. Not interested. That's the first response. Second response is of people who are like the wise men. And they are the ones who are responsive to God's revelation, whether it's in creation or whether it's in the scriptures, whether it's through the direction and circumstances of their life. They seek, and the Bible promises, if you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. For those who seek, find. Those who find, like they did, worship. Those who worship will consecrate. They'll give God their best. They'll consecrate their all to him. And those who worship him and consecrate their all to him will experience his direction in their life. And if necessary, they will change their ways. They'll change their directions. That's what the wise men do. Begins by seeking, finding, worshipping, giving and committing themselves and then being obedient to God's prompts. That's the journey of faith. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's the journey you're on. Thirdly, it's the chief priests and the scribes. These are the guys... They know God's will, they know what God's doing, they know his word, but they don't respond to it. They don't apply it, they don't obey it, they know it, they pay lip service to it, they perform their religious ceremonies, but they're just indifferent, they're apathetic to it. They know it, but they have no intentions of doing anything about it. So then the question is obvious, well, which group are you in? Or do you know people who are like Herod, who are pretty resistant? My dad's in that group. My dad is pretty resistant to Jesus and to the gospel. I wouldn't say that he hates Jesus, but gee, he's certainly stubborn and immovable. Only God can break through that. My dad's heard the gospel all different sorts of ways, uh, but his choosing would appear not to respond. And I know from earlier on in his life, that was his attitude. This world is it. When you die, you're dead. You go to darkness and there's nothing else. And for quite a while he was worried about me because he thought I was being deluded and deceived and all sorts of things. Some people are like Herod and you might know some people like that. 
Maybe you're like that. Well, if you are like that, you can change. God certainly wants to have mercy on you. The Bible does say that God is not willing that any should perish. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. God didn't make hell for us. Who did he make hell for? Satan and the demons. Not made for us. We were made to know him, love him, serve him, and so on. But if we choose not to, then he'll send us to the same prison, the same place that he'll send Satan and the angels to. There are the wise men who seek and find. Then there are chief priests. Well, they know the Bible. They'll do Bible studies. They'll talk about it. They have lip service, but they don't apply it. They don't do it. This is a dangerous one because it's a subtle one. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, still in Matthew, several chapters later, chapter 7, listen to this. Jesus said, talking about a wise man, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man built his house on rock. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine doesn't put them into practice. Scribes and Pharisees, chief priests, um, they're foolish. Like building a house in a stupid place on sand. It's a silly thing to do. It's a silly thing not to do what God's word tells us. So that's the danger for us as God's people, is that we read God's word and we know it, but we don't do it. That disconnect is a dangerous disconnect, and we need to work hard at reading and listening and doing what God is telling us to do. Because Jesus says, verse 21, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the wise men who came seeking the Christ child, we're responding to and doing something. And the scriptures invite us to be like them, not like Herod, resistant, and not like the scribes and the chief priests, and to know it, but not do anything about it. Bah humbug, it's Christmas again, so what? Well, that's an inappropriate response. God wants us to be responding. Um, 35 seconds on this, was I? There are theologians called Arminians. They believe, John Wesley and company, they believe that God reveals himself to every person on the planet. He opens the heart of everybody. And then it's up to them to choose to respond to or not. That's this extreme position. On the far extreme position is, um, I'm not comfortable calling it this, but it's most commonly called Calvinism. Or hyper-Calvinism might be a better definition. And that's where God and his sovereignty chooses to select certain people whom he will definitely convict and draw and bring to Jesus. The Bible teaches that. And the Bible teaches that God speaks to everybody. He's revealed stuff to everybody. So it's not that far apart, but it's here. And it would appear that if God does speak to everybody, it also appears that he gives other people special leniency. Jonah, he calls and says, I want you to go to Tarshish, and Jonah disobeys, and God pursues him. God calls Pharaoh to let his people go, and Pharaoh refuses, and God doesn't pursue him. God says, it's what you want, then I'll make sure that's what will happen. God hardens him in that defiant position. Somehow, God is at work in our world, working his sovereign purposes out. He's the sovereign creator, and all we can do is humbly submit to his sovereignty. I've got five seconds left. <clears throat> J.I. Packer says it best. Here are the two positions. The reality is we all hold both positions. 
on our knees were Calvinists. We're over here. We pray, God, open the heart of these people, change their minds, convict them of sin. It's up to you, Lord. You do it. You've got to do it. We acknowledge that. Over here, we plead with people, you need to repent, you need to choose, you need to understand, you have to come. It's not that or that. It's both of those together. And the, diff the problem for Arminianism and Calvinism is that I like this one, I don't like that one. And the trouble for Calvinists is I like this one, I don't like that one. When the Bible says both. And just because I'm on my hobby horse now, <clears throat> I don't like the word Calvinism because I don't think it's fair to the man himself, John Calvin. John Calvin was captivated by the scriptures. And so Calvin would say, God loves you. Jesus died for you. His followers weren't comfortable with that. They won't say it, but he would, because that's what the Bible said. Well, how do you reconcile it? Calvin said, not my problem, God wrote it. I just want to be true to the scriptures. Anyway, enough, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are not disturbed by the Lord Jesus, but rather we delight in him and we welcome him, we love him. And that's because you've been at work in our hearts and our lives and you're changing us. Thank you for your grace and kindness to us. Help us to be obedient and compliant with your will and purposes to share this truth with others. And thank you for this wonderful time of the year where we have that opportunity to do exactly that. So Lord, thank you for loving us and I pray that you would help each of us to be responsive and obedient to your word that it might be transforming our lives and achieving your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.